Welcome to ICTUS, the evolving conductor, your source for everything conducting, teaching, and lifelong learning on and off the podium. Treat yourself to a dose of musical inspiration as we pick the minds of great conductors. I'm your host, Lisa Tatum. Hey everyone. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Gabriel Crouch, who's the director of choral activity at Princeton University. After completing a choral scholarship at Trinity College, Cambridge, he spent eight years with the renowned a cappella group, The King Singers. Gabriel was just a joy to speak to, and I know you're gonna love this. Check out his own show at WWFM called Sounds Choral. But before we get to our chat, here's some information about another muted podcast show, Everything Band. Hello, my name is Mark Connor, and I am the host of the Everything Band podcast, a weekly interview show where I'm joined by leaders in the band community. Come join me each Monday to hear my guests share their stories and their wisdom with other listeners of the show. Hi, Gabriel. Thank you so much for joining us on ICTUS today. So excited to talk to you this morning. Hi, Lisa. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. Excited to do this. Yeah. So one of the things that we normally start off with on ICTUS is having our guests speak a little bit about their history, especially regarding when it was that you knew you wanted to be a musician. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I think, I think for me, uh, I, I spent a lot of my childhood and sort of young adulthood pretending that I didn't want to be a musician. And I, and ah. I, I suppose that, you know, I kind of, I, I got such a good start, such an early start, such a, such a lucky start in life as a musician, really, that, um, that it was kind of inevitable for me and that everybody was, I mean, I remember being constantly told, well, of course, when you're a professional musician, and I would go, who says I'm going to be a professional musician? You know, because, because I had dreams of being maybe, well, I kind of had dreams of being in a rock band for a while, which, you know, which is certainly not the musical path that, you know, my mother had in mind for me. <laughs> um, and I kind of, I, I, you know, I indulged that for about six months when I was 18. I, I, it didn't go so well. Um, and then I also, you know, kind of wanted to be a diplomat or something like anything. I mean, I want to do anything really except be a musician because I didn't want to be what everyone expected me to be. And I think that's a kind of, that's a sort of natural, like, you know, recalcitrant adolescent boy position, I, I, I guess. Um, uh, so, so I was, um, I mean, uh, you know, basically, you know, I come from an f- entire family of, of musicians. My, my mother's a professional violinist. And, um, and actually, you know, w- we were a low income family. And, and really, it was the search for free music lessons for me, the search for free violin lessons, which caused my mum to look at choir school education in England which basically which is really heavily subsidized or in some cases completely fully subsidized by either the church or by the crown strangely Mm. um depending on the institution that you're at and that then gives you access to you know a free education and free piano lessons and free violin lessons and so it's you know it's a it's a it's pretty awesome although very very select and kind of you know elitist in its in in its way um you know kind of like once you're in the system so um but i was lucky enough to to get myself into one of those institutions so when i was seven i think or eight i went to westminster abbey choir school which was a boarding school very very small like 32 wow 32 kids at this school and you know we were trained to become 
basically professional little singers, little boy treble singers in Westminster Abbey Choir, and you know, and and, and sing in all these posh and important royal events and things. And so, so uh, you know, and obviously, and then I was kind of fulfilling my mother's wishes by by having these free violin lessons, and that was definitely her hope for me is that I'd be a violinist, like her. Um, didn't work out. Um, so yeah, um, I know. And then I, I think basically music became my ticket through education in, in, in you know so, so it, being being a gifted i wasn't i was a fairly gifted little kid um got me up got me into that institution and it then got me into the next one and then and then after that it got me into trinity college at cambridge university which is which i which i suppose is you know trinity college choir is is a is a really famous um mixed undergraduate choir at Cambridge University, people people really love it nowadays, um, and um, and it and it has always been a very very good breeding ground for for musicians. So that was me for those three years, eighteen to twenty one, and really it was sometime in those three years when I was at university was when I transitioned from being that stubborn, arrogant, you know, adolescent who was refusing to do what was expected of him, yeah, into into finally you know, maturing and owning up to the fact that, you know, if I'm really going to make any kind of valuable contribution to this to this world, you know, if I'm lucky enough to be able to do that, it's most likely that that's going to be as a musician. So I better get on and own up to the fact that I'm a musician and um, and think about how to make a living. Wow. So, so, so it, was, it was around then. Okay. From there, how did you go from singing in choirs to I'm going to be a leader of these types of ensembles and to be a conductor. Yeah, because I, you know, I can definitely remember like looking at my peers age 20, 21, who were, who were thinking of themselves as conductors. Um, Maybe they were, maybe they were in England. It's in, in the, in the sort of liturgical choral setting in England, it's quite often that it's the organists who do double duty as conductors as well. And I'm a terrible keyboard player, terrible keyboard player. So I never thought of myself in that category of people. And in fact, you know, generally, I just thought that conducting was was for squares. You know, it was just kind of it was a little bit like you 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 remember being a 13 year old. I mean, I mean, there would have been a time in your life when you would have looked at teachers and thought, I don't know what I'm going to be in my life, but I am never going to be a teacher. <laughs> you know? And, and I, I think I was kind of having that experience as well. Like, I, you know. Not sure what what it is I want to do, but I definitely don't want to do that. That's how, that's how I felt as a as a twenty year old. Um, and then you know, and then strangely, you know, when things started happening quite quickly after that, it all started really with with me just going and sitting in libraries at, at the at the university I was in, and just kind of accidentally finding you know like big dusty volumes in in high shelves and pulling them down and and looking through them and seeing there's music in here and I don't know who's I've never heard of this composer and I don't and I don't know what this sounds really know what this sounds like I you know I you know I was trying to sort of audiate it as I was reading it but yeah. but just finding you know ancient volumes of old english mostly church music liturgical music by you know by 16th century composers 17th century composers and just thinking well there's you know there's a magic to this process there's a magic to 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 converting what's on the page to what's in the ear and ah. I and, and I and I want to be part of this and yeah. so it, it didn't start with the desire to conduct or to lead it started with the desire to unearth 
to reveal, you know, and, and to make my own discoveries as well. So so what this was around when I was about 2021, I was probably supposed in the library to do something else. So, it's, you know, you know so there's a classic you know, diversionary tactic, you know, instead of doing that thing that I have to do, I'm going to just go and look at these big volumes here. And, and so I pulled them off the shelf and I started transcribing music, writing it down. And then I found, you know, and I got together friends of mine who were singing with me in Trinity Choir in Cambridge, and we started to sing through this music. And, and from that experience of, you know, of discovering for the first time this music. And it was, these were handwritten manuscripts and it was unpublished, unrecorded, unknown. And, you know, we'd be singing through this music and, and our jaws would be dropping and thinking, what is this that we're, you know, what is what are we doing here? And, you know, and so, and so I got my first taste of trying to think in an interpretive way, like how can we make this music come alive? And then from that point, we thought, well, what do we need to do to, you know, what, what's the next step here? And the next step was we form an ensemble. Okay, who's going to lead that ensemble? Okay, well I'll I'll give that a go. And you know, and then we are having formed an ensemble. Well, we put some concerts on, and then we go well. Maybe we can make a record. And so we so we then we started talking to record labels, and then a recording contract appeared, and we you know and we became a group. The group was called Henry's Eight. I, I, it's not a household name by any means, but like you know, but we had a we had a you know a. We had a small life as a as a as a recording ensemble, and that was really my first taste of of leading. And then something rather wonderful and lucky happened to me when I was twenty one, which was that after I left university, I, I got a job singing in the King Singers, mm. and I, that was a big surprise to me. I wasn't expecting that to happen for me. I, I didn't, you know, the King Singers are obviously a really famous ensemble, but right. but but some but somehow in England they're not very well known because they because they they live most of their performing lives in in the in the US and also in Germany, and so I I I thought that I would be, you know, I wasn't really taking it seriously the 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 offer to audition for this group, but as soon as I actually turned up and started singing with them, I just completely I fell completely in love mm. with this craft with you know, with ensemble music making, you know, with kind of understanding what I was doing and, and the nuances of what everyone else was doing and trying to make something much bigger than the sum of its parts happen from a small ensemble, you know, trying to make, you know, try, understanding how sounds blend together and how that excites the atmosphere, how that, you know, kind of makes wonderful things happen within the harmonic series. You know, I, mean, I know that, you know, you're a wind musician, you understand this very, yeah. very well. <laughs> you know, and so a, a lot of, mysteries of ensemble music making were just unlocked for me in this moment in my first audition for the king singers as a 21 year old and i knew that this is what i wanted to do and and so i spent eight really happy years in that group which is a short time lots of people would say that i was an idiot for for, for only you know for only spending my 20s in that group when most people you know do it till they're 50. sure but an important thing that happened to me whilst i was in that group is that we came to the States all the time. And I, I just got repeated exposure to American education, and particularly at college level, did a lot of college gigs, hundreds and hundreds of college gigs and lots and lots of workshops and masterclasses. And I just, and I realized that I, I just felt really alive in, in the American education setting. And I, I never quite got over that. I never, never lost my fascination for it, my love for it. And, and, you know, even though I'd not, I wasn't on that path. I'd not had that kind of formal training. I just, I, just, I knew I wanted to work here. Uh, and, but it's but undeniably exciting 
and so and so many possibilities and and i really admire the fact that for any kid who wants or that's not quite true but for many 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 kids who want a good experience of music making there's there is someone to teach them and even though music is not universally accessible here and we would love it to be and we'll and that this is this is work that we should be doing it is much more accessible here than it is anywhere else that i've been certainly much more accessible here than it is in the uk where basically you know the red carpet is rolled out for you if you're exceptionally talented as a little kid as i you know, with all modesty i have to say that that that, that was me sure i was one of those lucky kids but why is it that I get I got all of that bounty just because I was showing all this, you know, because I was showing so much ability as a seven year old? You right. know, what, I mean, what, what about the people who who, who suddenly emerge as 17 year olds, mm-hmm. you know, or even as 25 year olds, you know, like, you know, who, who suddenly realize that they want their life to be full of this, this wonderful thing that blesses all of us, you know, you know, and, and that's that's why that's why I fell in love with this country and why I decided it was always at the back of my mind, you know, you want to stop doing that. You want to stop being the King Singers while you're young enough to, to do something else and like make mistakes with, ah. to, to nobody's cost, you know, like before I was, before I had a family or a partner or whatever, you know, that I was young enough to, to, to get it wrong and on, on the way to getting it right. And, and so that's why. So I, so I quit the King Singers age 30 and came over here and, you know, and I've never looked back. Wow. Yeah. I love so much of what you just said. It's really inspiring to hear someone talk about that aha moment or realizing that this is what I'm supposed to do or just knowing that this is the place where I belong and these are my people and this is Mm. my future. And I think it's really easy to deny ourselves of that because a lot of people will think, oh, well, it's not the right time or it's not the right place or I have this one other opportunity. But at the end of the day, you know what makes you happy and brings you light and brings you good experiences in the end. Right. I mean, and, you know, and there are lots of really good lessons here. Like don't be afraid to make changes mid career because you're never as old as you think you are. And, you know, and, and the other important lesson is, and I tell this to my students all the time, don't sweat the decision that you're going to make as a 21-year-old 20, too much because this feeling that you have right now that, like, I'm finished, you know, I am now, like, the creative process that has gone into making me is now done. There is no more learning to be done. There is now only doing. That is an illusion. That's, that, that sense that your building process is complete, that's an illusion. And it is perfectly okay to make a bad decision now and then make a better decision in 10 years time or, or, you know, or make a good decision now, but then make a different decision in 10 years time. That's how life works. I think for me personally, the pandemic taught me that there are more than one possibility out there. There's more than one possibility. Like the the future is infinite and it's all about Mm -hmm. making a decision and allowing yourself to make a decision. That's not what you always thought it was going to be. One of the reasons why this podcast was started last year is in search of great art and great artistry. And I'm wondering if you would share with listeners any pieces of music that you find to be personally great works of art. This is an incredibly interesting question. And, and of course, you know, my mind explodes in different directions simultaneously because I'm, you know, because I'm still a professional musician. I'm still a right. professional singer. I still, I still have my my passion in in old music as well which is you know which is kind of 
perhaps if you know if I had an area of expertise, and if I laughably use that word of myself, but if I had an area of expertise, it would be in early music. And then of course I'm you know I'm a teacher too, and you know and I really hook into what inspires kids. And and also I I have a, a radio show as well of my own on oh. WWFM called Sounds Choral, which uh, where where I try to you know, to bring valuable choral music to to an audience. So I'm thinking about this from different perspectives all the time. But okay, I mean you know we haven't got all day and you know you want an answer i think i'm i'm going to just pluck one thing out of the air i'm going to tell your listeners to go and listen to a piece called path of miracles by joby talbot so this is a piece of music it's over an hour in length that i was i was very heavily involved in the commissioning of back in the early 2000s 2003 2004 and um it was a project which, you know, which i was which i felt very passionate about a, you know a composer who just really crossed over from you know he was he was a keyboard player in a rock band called the divine comedy but he was also a classically trained composer and he was starting to write incredibly interesting symphonic and choral music you know but he'd only written like one choral piece and it was three minutes long but there was so clearly a voice there that, that, that could potentially write something incredible and so um together with one of my colleagues nigel Shaw, who's another ex-king singer we said about trying to put the things in place for him to write a huge piece of music by which i mean raising the money for it and also like finding the environment for the first performance. So we raised a lot of money and, you know, and, and worked with him on this idea to write this piece called Path of Miracles, which is about the route of pilgrimage across Northern Spain from like South of France to Santiago de Compostela mm. in, in, in Northwest Spain. And it's a, it's a classic Catholic pilgrimage route, but the piece is not about the life of a Catholic pilgrim. It's about our instinct to wander. It's about, it's about the wandering of the soul. It's about us traveling and looking for things, you know, like, you know, you know, looking for transformation. You know, that can be in a, in a specifically kind of Catholic sense in, in terms of pilgrimage, or it can be in a, a, a more universal spiritual sense, or it could even, it, it could be in much more utilitarian sense as well. It's an astonishing piece of music that embraces all of these, all of these you know, sides of us as people. It's not like any other choral music I know because he's not a choral composer. It feels like a symphonic work. It's extremely challenging. A piece that, you know, it, it took a great deal of, a great deal of, of work to, you know, to, to convert the music on the page in, into a, into a living performance piece. I've worked on it in the States with various different groups of young singers, primarily my students here at Princeton University, but I've also worked on it with um, with the Scola Cantorum at Yale University and I also Westminster Choir College, they've done it. But all of a sudden, America has really woken up to this piece and you know, choirs all over the country are doing it and are obsessed with it. I mean, I'm obsessed with it. It's it's a piece that it's a piece that grabs you and changes you, and, and it makes it hard to listen to anything else for a long time once you once you get into this piece. And I'm so overwhelmed with joy at seeing that happening because I've known obviously I've known this piece for 16 years. I've been singing this piece in you know in in the UK and in Europe for 16 years, and I've and 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 I've so wanted the message of this piece to hit home in America, and it's finally starting to happen in a huge way. And I think that your listeners will. I think I think you might get a huge amount out of listening to this piece as well, particularly if you're non non choralists. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I think that there is there's an instrumental texture to the way this music is written that will immediately inspire your listeners too. And I don't think it's. I, I know that the, there's a wonderful uh, crossover of choral music and, and band music mm. 
a, a lot of contemporary composers in America, they you know we see that their their favorite choral works also existing in versions for band. Right. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that that could happen for this piece as well, or, or for sections of this piece. And I, I'll also tell you, there's a another really sort of powerful emotional component to the life of this piece is that its world premiere was set for July the 5th, 2005. Mm. And that date probably won't mean anything to you, but July the 5th, 2005 happens to be a date when a large number of bombs went off in London. Bombs oh. on buses, bombs on buses and bombs in the underground. And and so so on this day, on on July the 5th, 2005, I was on my way to like final rehearsal for this world premiere and then to give the world premiere and I was on a bus and oh. it was nine and nine in the morning, nine thirty in the morning. And at, at all of a sudden the bus driver yelled, everybody off the bus, everybody off the bus. And this, this happened all over the city. Like all buses turned out, turned their passengers out onto the street, all the tubes stopped and, and, and underground passengers were all turned up on, turned out onto the street. And, and we, we gradually worked out, you know, what was going on. And then life stood still and everyone went home and, and reflected on this terrible thing that had happened in the city and on the, the lives that had been lost. And of course, no one was thinking about the world premiere of this piece anymore, so we had to cancel it. Sure. So the, the birth of this piece kind of is intertwined with a, with a very tragic story and, and its emergence, I think, took a back seat for a little while. But... But the fact that it is now happening, finally, that it, that people are now awake to this piece kind of represents something, I think, about our ability to to recover as people, you know, to um, you know, communities to rebuild. It has that resonance for me anyway, because of because of what the, that experience was like that day. I'm really thankful that you shared that story. And I'm really looking forward to listening to that piece. It's totally awesome. I mean, it's totally awesome. It's in a funny sort of way, it's quite accessible as well. You know, you're not, you, you won't listen to it and go, oh, I think I might have to listen to this 12 times before I understand. You know, it's, it's immediately, viscerally, completely compelling. Mm. So yeah, go for it. It's interesting that it was somebody who wrote this was not a typical uh, choral composer. I think yeah. some of the most exciting music that's written in the last 20 years comes for people getting out of their comfort zones, composers getting out of their comfort zones and writing for a medium that they're not necessarily used to. Mm -hmm. I think that's when new voices and new sounds uh, and new styles and concepts start to move forward. That's really exciting. Earlier, you talked about when you were a student going and finding scores and, and looking at them and audiating things and coming up with your own voice of how things sound. Hmm. What are your thoughts on learning how to create your own voice as a conductor and not just listening to a recording and copying exactly how that sounded because this person did it that way and they're really smart so clearly they must be right. How do you how do you teach people to find their own voice and to trust themselves? Well, I think the most important component of that is convincing them that those first halting steps are okay and are part of the process. So you know, it's an it's an inevitable part of like letting go of you know of the guidance of experts, you know, you know, and, and, of, and of, try, of trying to find your own voice. And there, an inevitable part of that is not liking what you do, mm. is being you know disappointed in what you come up with. And I, I think this is a fundamental part of education in general. Learning to love that, learning to to rejoice in failure, 
and and not call it not even call it that <laughs> and to just i mean because this close proximity of you know of beauty and and not beauty <laughs> i i think you know as singers we have to be unafraid of that as well you know and i think you know we have to be unafraid of of the ugly sound because the beautiful sound is right next door to it mm. and so and and the interesting sound is even closer as well you know i i think that that's I think that that's a fundamental part of this. So, so as a teacher, I think to learn to celebrate, to genuinely celebrate something that doesn't work, to go, you know, to be able to say, oh, "Gosh, isn't that interesting? That you know, that was a complete catastrophe." And wow, isn't I mean, isn't isn't it wonderful how how things can can just turn out disastrously? And then and let's go again, and and this time we'll just make this slight adjustment and see what happens then. And oh look, wow, hooray! That was a complete disaster as well. And on we go, and on we go, and on we go. And every iteration of you know of this this effort that we make, every iteration is life affirming and, and celebratory. And whether it's pleasing or not, that there is something to learn from that process, from those mistakes. And there is certainly nothing to to take discouragement from in that process as well. I, I think that that's that's the most important part of this. It's very difficult as well because I mean certainly my experience of my students here is that they're very they're very um, results oriented. They're very conscious of how they're coming across you know they're used to succeeding as well mm -hmm. some of them are, are new to this to this art as well and so so you know with high achieving students who are at the beginning of a journey you have to really place it right when when, when you're teaching them of you know of, of how to of how to celebrate the the muck how to enjoy the mistakes different educational cultures around the country you know it, it's different um, i noticed this you know how how different students are from one campus to another but certainly right here it's the it's the biggest part of my job i think is to encourage celebrating the the flawed mm -hmm. well that's what makes us human and music yeah. is a human art none of us are perfect and we're all out in search of the perfect performance, but the fact of the matter is it's never going to happen. And I love that you talk about leaning into the failures and leaning into the flaws because it is, that's where you learn and that's where you grow is moving past that and taking that and deciding to move forward after that. I hope we come out of this pandemic with a slightly less obsessive quest for the pristine because I don't find the pristine terribly interesting. I don't think our students learn as much from it. The obsessive quest for kind of for blandness which which is is a bit of a problem in in the american music scene in some quarters you know i i hope we can get past that one thing that does worry me is the way that we've harnessed technology during the pandemic to create you know, virtual ensemble recordings which are digitally um, manipulated yeah. um to the to the point where you really can't hear the, the the personal qualities of the people involved at all and how our ears have become accustomed to this stuff and i see that as being as much of a crime <laughs> against yeah. music as as photoshopping photoshopping our natural kind of curves and imperfections is a crime against the, the essential beauty of the human body and, and we should not be doing this that's what just just came to mind when you were talking about that is photoshop we've been talking about photoshop for years and now there's this body positive movement going forward, showing what real bodies look like. And mm. I'm wondering at what point that's going to cross over into exactly what you're talking about and to music making. And even, you know, you go through these recording sessions and you piecemeal all these things together to create this perfect performance. But I, I don't know about you, but when I listen to an album that's produced like that, I don't have an overwhelming 
experience of musical joy. I get joy from watching recordings of, or listening to recordings of live concerts and, oh, again, hearing the humanity in it. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. one of my favorite performances, concerts I've ever been to a, in all time was watching the Chicago Symphony perform Shostakovich Five. And yeah. one of the best orchestras in the world, one of my favorite concert going experiences, and there were flaws in that performance. There were yeah, notes that were out of tune. There were chipped chords. There, there were chipped notes. And I think that was one of my most favorite experiences, music watching, listening ever. So I don't know. Yeah. And it's something that I've, I've grown up grappling with as well because, because it's, there's an American perception of the, of the English choral sound, which is that this is what it is, that, that it, it is perfection in blend. And of course, you know, I, I used to sing, I sang for all those years in the King Singers, and that's obviously something that's thrown at them as well, for better or worse. And we were always battling against it. You know, we're always wanting to make sure that there was like, you know, genuine, you know, emotional content and, and personality and, and spontaneity as well in the way that we were performing. And I can promise you, I mean, you know, you know, our recordings were never, ever, ever manipulated in the way that certain groups of shall remain nameless do now through, you know, things like Melodyne. Something that I've always tried to emphasize in my work in this country is that if there are lessons to be taken from British choral music, please don't let one of them be that all singing should be, you know, should be as characterless as possible, you know, that we should reduce all our voices to the lowest common denominator to give them the best possible chance to blend. So thereby, you know, removing extremes of timbre, you know, and vibrato and things like that. You know, it, it's that's actually not what good British choral singing is. And I don't think it's, you know, that's a good flag for American choral musicians to follow. I, you know, I mean, to a large extent, I think that message is, is definitely getting getting through now. But I, but it does does worry me sometimes. You know, when, you know, when I there, there are just there are just certain schools of choral music making here which I think a little bit too uh, sort of over obsessed with that with that lack of individual character that I think is I think has to be a component of ensemble music making. I heard an analogy about blend earlier this year, and I love it, and I've been using it when I'm teaching ensembles about balance and blend, and mm. I want to share it with you and with everybody. So I've heard about there's two ways that you can talk about blend with your ensemble mm. and it's, it's food related. I'm also a foodie. I love food. So this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so there's yeah, one both. type of blend that's like a smoothie and you have all oh. these great ingredients that go into the blender and they're blended together to create this one amalgam of a new flavor, a new taste and all the parts work together to create something new. And then there's another type of blend that's like a salad. And you have all these great ingredients that go into a salad and you toss it together and they all work together and they also create something new, but each flavor is meant to be savored and meant to be on its own, even though it's on the same plate in the same bowl. And so I'm wondering kind of your thoughts about that sort of analogy and mm. if maybe, maybe if you could share some thoughts on blend specifically in the choral world that might be different from say an orchestra or a band. Yeah, that's a lovely analogy, and it kind of and it makes me think that when you have that that smoothie blend, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. These things you know, amalgamate into one and form and form a new taste, a new sensation. But but at the same time, there's 
there is also one kind of there's one sort of domineering sensation as well from that smoothie and it's it's normally like it's banana you know or it's or it's you know, whatever you know, what it's, do you know what i mean i mean i, I think yeah. when i have a smoothie if there's banana in it really what i what i taste is banana yeah um and, and i think in a way that there's and a banana is a pretty kind of inoffensive mushy fruit and, and and in a way that's with a choir that works too hard to make every single voice every voice at exactly the same volume with exactly the same timbre using the exact same amount of breath exactly the same uh, vibrato frequency or preferably complete absence of vibrato if, if we can kind of digitize the human voice to the furthest possible extent what you end up with is banana mm-hmm. you know you end up with mushy banana there isn't enough seasoning there you know there, there isn't enough texture there isn't enough mouthfeel a bite and those lovely surprises that you get with a thoughtfully assembled salad. <laughs> um, but I think that I think that the magic of blend is not is not searching for forty voices that make as close as possible an identical sound, respecting the varieties and register. What's magical about it is discovering how these two completely different voices can somehow, by listening, and you really have to listen, what, whatever I might say about letting go of, you know, of obsession with blend, you've always got to listen. I sure. mean, you know, you, <laughs> you've got to listen more than you sing, always. You know, in the King Singers, we used to say it's 80% listening and 20% singing, and I still passionately believe that. But somehow, that these two voices, which are completely different in every imaginable way, but through listening, there is a way to make those two voices work together and do something magical that's that's greater than the sum of their parts. Mm. It's harder to get to that point, much, much harder, but ultimately much more rewarding and much more valuable because A, there are surprising tastes. You know, that, I mean, there are surprising sensations within that combination, but also because it opens up the possibility that actually you don't need to be from the same, exactly the same background and have exactly the same vocal production mechanism in order to blend that you know, the possibility exists for human voices from all over the globe to come together and, and you know and make something magical happen that all it takes is all it takes is you know extra effort extra thought and a huge amount of listening but all the wonderful things that happen when we listen not just in music but in but in life in general what a wonderful thing it is to be able to truly hear another human being and then and then offer something in return that blends with it and that's a sort of you know, sort of holistic approach to blend, but I passionately believe that, and that it's much better. It's much better to do that deep work. You know, blend is something that we can that we can acquire through knowledge, through immersion, through listening, rather than. I mean, I, I say this with a huge amount of love for my for, for phenomenal colleagues that I ha- that I have in in this profession, but I, I I don't personally love those choirs which are assembled by. You know, by having you stand next to you and sing, you know, sing happy birthday or sing, you know, my country to the or whatever. Just think, you know, and then, you know, and then I'll put you next to you and you next to, you know, and, and then and, and try to kind of build the choir up through like, you know, similar sound, similar sound, similar sound, similar sound. I find it more rewarding to invite students to explore what's in their sound, what's in your neighbor's sound. And what are the, what are those little bits of similarities that you can latch onto and make something happen with? Mm. It's harder. And and it's and less reliable <laughs> as well, but more rewarding, I think. Remember, you know, I come from you know, I come from the place where which is alleged to be the you know, the, the fount of all kind of bland blending. You know, this that's that's what I was 
that's what I was brought up in. That's what is what what people believe I was trained to do. But I mm. but I don't see it that way. But like just you know, for you and I to sing and to and to you know and to find what it is that that would make a duet between us sound like sound sound exciting. Yeah, I love the way you talk about that, and I think that's going to be really telling for a lot of listeners, especially a lot of listeners who aren't typically used to hearing about those types of blendings in, in choir and mm-hmm. things like that. One more question for you, and then we're going to wrap up with some rapid fires. Go for it. If you were going to offer one piece of advice for mm-hmm. young conductors, young musicians, young teachers, what would that be? Well, certainly one thing I would say is, you know, is get to know everything. I mean, do everything um, in the sense as a, as a conductor, as an orchestral conductor, you ha- you have to understand that, that these consistent predictable pathways for music making are not there anymore they're just mm. not you, it's not even a matter of whether you know getting lucky and they're basically not there anymore you have to understand the process you have to be a good teacher you have to be prepared to, for that to be part of your life it may or may not be but you have to understand the process you have to understand the technology you have to yeah. You have to understand the compositional process. It may well be that you'll you know, that you'll need to you know, be an arranger at some point. You have to understand publicity and marketing. You have to know how to write, how to sell yourself. Mm-hmm. You you need to know what your fellow musicians are going through. So so as a as a conductor standing up in front of an orchestra, you know I mean you know I take great comfort in the fact that I that I played the violin all those years because it, I really feel like it helps me to communicate with string players. There's nothing more annoying than you know than, than than being a musician and working for a conductor who doesn't understand the process that you're going through. Mm-hmm. So my answer to your question is: know it all, do it all, learn it all, be it all. Learn the technology, learn the craft, learn as much about about the practice of music making as you possibly can. Learn about marketing, learn about publicity, learn about writing, learn about selling yourself, learn about web design. You know, learn about audio engineering. Learn about you know, do all of that work because this is, an, this is an unpredictable world that you're moving into and you need to understand as much of it as possible in, 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 in order to have a happy life in it. That would be my advice. Yeah, well, it reminds me of what you said earlier about it, it seems like young people have this mindset that you have to you go to school and you go to college and you do all this learning for four years and then your learning is done and you move on and you're stuck Mm -hmm. in this career and Mm -hmm. that is just so disheartening and depressing to me but the thing that excites me the most about being a musician and a conductor is that i forever get to learn and i get to forever get to grow yeah well i mean i think i mean allied to what to what i said i think it's i think it's incredibly important that we all understand that 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 this sense that when we go to college, this is our building time, and then, and then once we've gone through that building time, then it's all exposition from then on. That's an illusion. That and my exhortation to you all to you know, to learn everything does not. That's not confined to college in any way at right. all. You know, the the most important things that you'll learn. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're gonna. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm learning bewilderingly new things to me now, and I'm forty. How old am I? Forty-seven. You know, mm-hmm. and I, and I still don't feel all that old. I made a decision to come to conducting when I was thirty, which was a complete flip, and I felt young then. I've been doing it sixteen years. I mean, quite a long time, and and yet it's only it's only half of my career today, and I still don't feel all that old. Funnily enough, I still feel like I hope I'm not that old because I. Because I still got a lot <laughs> to learn. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I, I hope that I can get better at what I'm doing because I'm not good enough yet. <laughs> I love um, that. 
so yeah learn everything and take all your life to do it yeah maybe maybe, maybe that's a better way to answer the question and that's so, such great advice we're going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions these okay. are super fun and i often encourage guests not to think too hard about them usually the first thing that comes to mind is probably the answer to go with <laughs> um uh, yeah <laughs> Sometimes the second answer. Be careful, answer. I don't be careful know. what you wish for, yeah. <laughs> so the first question is, what's a concert you'll never forget? A Japanese percussion ensemble called Wadaiko Ichiro. It's the only time that I've ever not just given a standing ovation, but stood on my chair. I stood up to applaud them, but I was so still so excited and I still had so much like you know, pent up emotion uh -huh. that I felt like oh, I'm going to start actually stand on my chair. So I like, I was like on my chair, you know. <laughs> um, so, so that it's. Uh, I think they're an offshoot of of Japanese kodo drummers, and they're called Wadaiko Ichiro. Amazing. The second question is, what's the best meal you've ever eaten? Oh, it might be Japanese as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, Japanese food. Yeah. My, well, my wife bought me a genuine piece of Japanese um, Wagyu for my birthday last year, which was imported under refrigeration. I mean, I mean, oh gosh, I mean, the carbon footprint must, have, I mean, the penance I have to do for this, <laughs> but, but yes, then, and this was actually, you know, during the pandemic, oh, wow. um, you know, because my birthday is, is, all, is always traditionally in a, a, a kind of culinary wonderland. And so, and so we had to do it at home, but she, but she bought me this, um, incredible incredible piece of uh, of japanese beef which i cooked very carefully in a sous vide and then finished very finished very gently in the in a you know in the skillet and so it was barely cooked and it tasted absolutely unbelievable unbelievable my mouth is watering uh the next one is do you have any musical heroes musical heroes i mean the first answer that came to my head was it's like Perlman, who's a violinist mm. Uh, so you know that, um, but who's a virus, you know, who's, who has obviously overcome some significant uh, health battles in, in order to be the, the supreme fiddle player that, that he is. I've always absolutely adored him, his music making. I get, I don't, I never, never met him. My wife has. My wife actually used to work wow. on his management team. But I've always, always imagined that he's just the loveliest human being as well. So it's that apartment. And then I've got to give another answer to this because, you know, because I absolutely adore, adore, adore. The band Radiohead, and um, and and I, and I kind of and I feel like, you know, if I'd written, you know, if I'd written some of the stuff that that Tom York and Johnny Green would have written in Radiohead, and you know, a couple of those albums that they've written, I just think I would die a happy man right now. I, you know, I think that's I think what they do is absolutely unbelievable, and I watch them whenever I can. Yes, ab absolutely. This next question mm. I have been told is difficult, but it's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite okay. questions to ask. You can meet any musician, alive or dead, for coffee. Who would you meet and why? Francis Poulenc. Oh. I have a, I have a, I, I'm obsessed with Francis Poulenc for a number of reasons. I, I know I'd love the man. I, I'm really, really drawn to musicians who understand their limitations. Mm. You know, I, I'm really drawn to Schubert for that reason. I mean, I think, you know, Schubert kind of, Schubert's very, very, obviously, clearly a very humble man, wrote music of unimaginable beauty, but never composed the big, like the big ego work. I mean, you know, always revered Beethoven and never dared go into the, in, you know, in, into those those, those gr grand scales that Beethoven wrote in. I always felt that way about Schubert. Poulenc is the same. Now Poulenc 
grew up in early 20th century Paris, surrounded by all of these incredible composers, but particularly living under the shadow of Stravinsky. And, you know, spent some time trying to write music a bit like Stravinsky, obviously worshipped him. But when it comes down to it, Poulenc is just a, writes beautiful tunes, like really, really yeah. beautiful tunes, understands human emotion. You know, and when in 1936, Poulenc kind of switched approach and just focused on choral music and vocal music from that point on for the rest of his life. And allowed all of these influences just to kind of just to feed into him, you know, that, that you know, the influence of modernism is definitely there, the influence of jazz and created this voice, which is uniquely his. It definitely has a wonderful sense of humor. I know that he was had a naughty sense of humor and was very good at laughing at himself. You can tell all these things from his music. And I, I, so from, you know, from what I've read of his writings as well, his humility, I know that he'd be wonderful company. And I'm really, really drawn to him for that reason. I love Francis Poulenc. And yeah, yeah this is Figure this is Men, his, his greatest work. That was a quick answer. I'm just so excited to go listen to more, more to go listen to more Poulenc's music now. You said that thing about him being in the shadow of Stravinsky. I don't think I realized that or knew that, but that makes complete sense, especially being in Paris and France around the same time. Right. Yeah. Well, Paris was completely dominated by I mean, you know, by Russians at, at that time. You know, yeah. I mean, was, you know but but Diaghilev in in the, at the you know the ballet, obviously, and Stravinsky, and then Prokofiev later on as well. And there's actually, I mean, I think in a way there are lots of fascinating similarities in the music of Prokofiev and Poulenc. I love Prokofiev's music as well. And then the, the philosophers as well. I mean, you know, Jean Cocteau and Eric Satie, that, there was such a lot of, you know, of, of incredible art making going on there. And Poulenc was a relatively small figure, I guess. But for me, for me, really, really important. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Last question. Yeah. What's one thing that you're grateful for right now? Oh, my wife, Christy, Christy Starrett. I mean, and I'm so, I'm so grateful that, you know, amongst all of the, all of the burdens that you know that, that the pandemic has brought upon us that I've you know you know I, I can will never catch myself complaining about anything because a salaried musicians during a pandemic have nothing to complain about I mean I mean yes it's sad that we're not able to make music but my goodness I mean the degree to which our fellow musicians who are unsalaried are suffering right now you know I just I don't want to hear anything coming out of my mouth that's yeah. just, that sounds like a complaint but you know at, at the same time you know we've all got to learn a, a, a lot about our about our lives at home, about about how we've set up our lives, who we share our lives with, um, you know, and and you know we have to look our partners in the eyes. Those of us who have lucky to have partners, you know, you know we, we 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 have to look them in the eyes and share this experience with them. The whole reason why I came to Princeton in the first place in 2010 was because I fell in love with this human being, and it was not because I, you know, I mean I I adore my job at Princeton, but actually the reason why I came here was because Christy lived here. And, um, you know, we got married in 2012 and I cannot, cannot tell you how, you know, how lucky I am to have, to have met her and married her. And I mean, the, you know, the sort of fortunate consequence of events that, that, that brought us together. And I'm grateful for, grateful for every element of that every single day. My goodness. When it comes down to it, it's so much more important than anything else. And to, to have that kind of love in your life. Yeah. And, you know, that's my, it's my biggest wish for all of you out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and I've had a, a spectacular time speaking with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm glad to have made this connection. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook or online at www.com ictuspodcast.com 
Have a great week. Stay safe out there.